think again. In this episode, we're opening the government's case files in the Nasir Square shootings in Baghdad. All of the case files, especially the evidence that the government curated or just plain hid from the three grand juries and three juries it took to put Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Nick Slatton, and Paul Slough in prison five years ago. Now, since this podcast went live, I've been accused of whitewashing a massacre of 34 innocent Iraqi civilians. There's even a petition out there demanding that Fox News apologize for airing stories about my podcast. These people are completely missing the point. This case is not a red state, blue state line in the sand. This is about a complete breakdown in our criminal justice system that frankly scares the hell out of me. Listen to the facts from the same investigation the government conducted to imprison the men of Raven 2-3 and ask yourself instead, would you feel confident enough in American justice to go on trial for your life in these same circumstances? This is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. Multiple Iraqi police with AK-47s were running and apparently preparing for some type of attack. Shortly after arriving, I started to hear small arms fire. Fearing for my life and the lives of my teammates, I engaged the vehicle and stopped the threat. At the same moment... I looked in the direction of the fire and observed two men in civilian clothes firing in my direction and heard impacts around me landing on my vehicle. Another shooter is located next to the pillar approximately 150 meters from my position, shooting in my team's direction. The Iraqi army, the Iraqi national police, and the U.S. army all converged on Nisor Square within minutes of Raven 2-3's exit. As we mentioned in our last episode, the New York Times put the death toll at no more than eight, and the Iraqi government issued a statement condemning Blackwater for combined 12 fatalities and injuries in Nisor Square. But there were only two bodies, and no autopsies were conducted. Except for the white Kia, every other vehicle had been moved, or removed, so no meaningful bullet trajectory analysis or other forensics were performed. Although it was clear from the statements you just heard that Iraqi militia were involved in the shooting and that the Iraqi National Police was infiltrated by Iran-backed militias, the investigation was inexplicably handed over to an Iraqi police colonel named Faris Kareem. Here's how Colonel Kareem went about identifying victims. He ran television commercials, asking people who were victims of the Nisor Square shootings to come forward. If you've ever watched a mesothelioma ad or any other class action lawsuit commercial, 
on a news network, these were the type of commercials that they ran. People who suffered property damage got $2,500, those with injuries $5,000, and deaths $10,000 from the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. There was no attempt to preserve the scene or match American bullets with Iraqi victims, but there were two slim chances that integrity would win the day. The first were photographs of AK-47 shell casings taken at about 12.40 p.m. on September 16, 2007 by U.S. Army Captain Peter Deckerow. Deckerow heard the gunfire at his post at the nearby forward operating base Prosperity, adjacent to Nassau Square. He brought his camera and platoon to document what had just happened. Deckerow photographed enemy shell casings behind the bus stop where the Raven 2-3 team reported enemy gunfire. He also told the FBI later that Iraqi army officers were picking up shell casings and other objects as he watched and removing them from the scene. Remember, Deckerow and Raven 2-3 had no contact with each other. Yet the locations where he documented those enemy shell casings are the exact same as the team members described in their statements just two days later. Here's what Deckerow told the FBI in 2008. I didn't hand count it, but I could estimate there was over 100, 150 rounds that were all along the southern end of the traffic circle. And like I said, it was a mix of the 556 and the larger 762. Like I said, without counting it, there was more 762 than there was 556. To translate what Decoreau just said, there was a mix of 556 shells, the size used by American forces and contractors, and 762 shells used in the Iraqi insurgency's AK-47 assault rifles. That sounds like a two-way firefight to me. But in this powder keg of a situation, Decoreau's first instinct was to smooth things over with the Iraqis. In his testimony, he describes putting out flyers saying basically, please let us know if you or some of your family were involved with this incident. If you have damage to your house, your vehicle, we want to get you some monetary compensation. He told the jury, we just wanted to make sure we didn't harm some of the good we did in rebuilding the schools and local infrastructure. Decoreau turned over the photographs to the FBI, but they mysteriously disappeared for seven years. The photographs resurfaced halfway through the 2014 trial of Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slatton. The assistant U.S. attorney actually described his failure to turn over this exculpatory evidence that directly contradicted the government's theory that Nisser Square was an unprovoked massacre as an innocent oversight. So photographs of the enemy shell casings just disappear. That's bad, but there was even better evidence available to the defense in a report that Blackwater itself commissioned right after the incident. I learned about this report from Eric Prince when I interviewed him earlier this year. He's mentioned this report in other interviews that I found on YouTube. Here's what he had to say about it. 
We hired the former chief prosecutor of Iraq. And he had retired after actually prosecuting Saddam. We hired him to investigate this, to see who was actually hurt, because we, the ones that were hurt, we actually paid, uh, you know, uh, called salacia payments, just like the military does if someone is injured or killed accidentally in battle. So we investigated, he investigated that, and visited each one of these people and each one of these families. And there was 11 people that were killed. We don't know that they were all killed by a Blackwater round, but we know that they were killed in the Nisera Square incidents. There was a lot of other people that were injured, wounded, and brought to American military facilities to seek treatment. And when they would remove the bullets, they would find that it is a 7.62 bullet that weighs 123 grains, which is exactly what an AK-47 round weighs. And it's very, very hard to, to misinterpret that as any other round, because none of our men were shooting anything like an AK-47 round that day, or ever. The point being, a lot of the other wounded, and a lot of the dead, and because of the, the Muslim uh, religious requirement to bury them within 24 hours, means you really don't have time to do detailed autopsy and a very detailed um, post, um, post-incident analysis uh, of all these uh, of all these happenings, but I do know that I saw medical reports of a number of cases because people were bringing in wounded, saying, "Hey, I need payment for this uh, for this incident, this incident with the U.S. military that happened in Nisra Square." And they call it a U.S. military incident. It was a obviously it was black this report black. clearly is not secret, but try as I might, I can't lay my hands on it. I asked Eric Prince and his minions repeatedly for access to the report. I called Constellus, the company that acquired Blackwater after the Nassar Square incident. I called the American law firm that I think wrote it up. Nada. Nothing. And no explanation as to why I can't see a report that supposedly exonerates Paul Slough, Nick Slatton, Dustin Hurd, and Evan Liberty. Several days after the shooting, on September 20th, 2007 to be exact, U.S. Army investigators went back to Nasser Square. Specifically, they went back to that bus shelter where the team said enemy gunmen were firing at them. Some of them called it a shack in their statements. The investigators were looking for evidence that proved Raven 23's statements, and they found it. This video was on the thumb drive that Tony Guerrero gave to Tommy Vargas in 2007. The voices you hear are army investigators. Here it is. We were on top of the bus stop, and we have both sent round actual bullets and shell casings on top of the bus stop. Okay, so what does that mean? So what he's saying there is this is where the enemy is firing on us from. Okay. Because this is the government, this is the and government. they're finding AK-47 shells on top of the bus station. Yep. And yet they deny it in trial. Yeah, that's it right there. There's two shell casings. Two shell casings. A lot of times they hit you from one spot, and they move to a different spot. So, but it has more than a 556, five, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, I don't know. Pretty big hole. I don't know what that is. You know, that could be. But like I said, this is a whole ground. Right. 
Okay, they're saying it's an old round. Well, they can say it's an old round, but these guys don't have new ammo like we do. Uh -huh. A lot of their ammo is from, from Russia. It's... Well, there you have it. Witness testimony about a gun battle and physical evidence that somebody was shooting the insurgent's weapon of choice in Nisser Square. So how does this result in manslaughter or murder charges? We asked criminal defense lawyer Joseph Lowe for some answers. Lowe is a former U.S. Marine who defends servicemen and women accused of war crimes. He is not involved in the Raven 2-3 case, but since his client was the only defendant to walk free in the Pendleton 8 case, and he represented the chief witness in the recent Eddie Gallagher war crimes trial, I figured he knew what he was talking about. He's also an instructor at the JAG Academy in California. So you, you have a client that comes in and says he's a soldier, just just say soldier because it's what these guys were in a in a protective you know doing diplomat protection right um they say that they were they came into this traffic circle right after a, a car bombing and they were supposed to clear out this place called nisser square they say that they were shot at there's plenty of physical evidence that they were shot at and even though the government initially um said there were there's no evidence they were shot at um, they changed their minds in 2017 and said, oh, yeah, that they were shot at. So what's your defense against manslaughter and murder charges? Like, what is a complete defense for manslaughter and murder charges in that situation? Yes, there's two of them. Okay. Defense of yourself or defense of another, or you can even say defense of property. So if someone is shooting at you, you can shoot back and kill them and be absolved of a conviction for murder because you were defending yourself. If they are shooting at one of your loved ones or one of your friends, you can shoot back and kill them and be absolved from that because you're defending another. Or if they're coming in and shooting at you because they want to steal your wallet, you can shoot back and kill them and, again, um, be absolved of a murder conviction because you're defending property. So it's pretty simple, right? Yes. On that same day, a U.S. Army officer named Colonel David Basligo told his men to scour Nisser Square for evidence. His men saw investigators picking up AK-47 rounds at the tree line that Tommy Vargas mentioned in his radio calls. Remember? Two in the tree line? But Basligo testified at all three trials that there was no evidence of an ambush. He admitted, however, that his Iraqi handlers wouldn't let him view the entire square and that they weren't looking for physical evidence anyway. In the second trial, Basligo actually admitted that he wasn't even in Nasser Square when all this happened. Despite massive credibility issues, the government relied heavily on him during the trials. Here's an actor reading his testimony. I was only able to observe generally in the vicinity that we actually walked around with General Hussein al-Wadi, so I didn't go around the entire circle at that time. Their judicial system operated on a confession-based manner. That was all they cared about. The idea of forensic evidence, etc., was something that the U.S. forces was attempting to introduce to the Iraqi police and justice system. But it, it was meeting with resistance. This is one of the many areas, you know, where people just scratch their heads and think we're back into conspiracy theories. Why would Boslego lie like that? And why did prosecutors rely on evidence that was so obviously tainted when they had clear evidence 
that the Raven 2-3 convoy came under fire from enemy combatants. We'll get into why later in this episode, Mike. Let's start with how. How were American prosecutors able to ignore such overwhelming evidence of a gun battle? The answer, the man in charge of the investigation, Colonel Kareem, declared up front that there were no insurgents in Nisser Square. But a helicopter crewman flying overhead saw something different. Gunmen dressed as Iraqi police, just like the Raven 2-3 men described. This is an actor reading helicopter crewman Timothy Spizak's testimony in 2014. I did notice that several times, a blue-shirted police officer would roll over the top of the HESCO barrier, take his shirt off, drop his gun, and walk away. Okay, so you have insurgents dressed as Iraqi police on the scene, tainted evidence, lying witnesses, and a complete defense against the charges. How could this case ever go to trial? What was the result the government wanted, and why? Well, Keith George has an idea about that. He thought the reason for the change in the investigation process was that Ambassador Ryan Crocker had taken over at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad about six months earlier. And unlike his predecessor, Crocker had an agenda to make it look like President Bush's surge was working and that all of the reform actions taken to reform the Iraqi military and the Iraqi police were working as well. And Crocker apparently was willing to give away the farm to make that happen. And I believe that if Ambassador Khalilazad had still been there, um, it would have been handled much differently. Um, And probably more correctly, you know, but Ambassador Crocker was not, he was not a fan of Blackwater. He made no, no bones about, about that. And, uh, you know, he was probably more of the stereotypical State Department ambassador type, you know, the kinder, gentler, all we just need to do is hug it out and it'll be okay. Well, since Keith George served two years under Calizad and a year under Crocker, he might be biased. So we did a little digging. Here's an excerpt from a 2016 New Yorker magazine article that confirms Keith George's impression and explains why Crocker's worldview was a little different from Calizad. He was trying to negotiate peace in Iraq with Iranian General Qassam Soleimani. After Saddam's regime collapsed, Crocker was dispatched to Baghdad to organize a fledgling government called the Iraqi Governing Council. He realized that many Iraqi politicians were flying to Tehran for consultations, and he jumped at the chance to negotiate indirectly with Suleimani. In the course of the summer, Crocker passed in the names of prospective Shiite candidates, and the two men vetted each one. Crocker did not offer veto power, but he abandoned candidates who Suleimani found especially objectionable. The formation of the Governing Council was, in its essence, a negotiation between Tehran and Washington, he said. Let's go back to my friend Entifad Kanbar, the former president of the Iraqi National Congress, an Iraqi government official, and somebody who had been warning the United States about this for over a decade. This is what he told us. When the 
U.S. came to Iraq, Iran didn't have assets inside Iraq. The first people who they rely on to do terror operations against the United States are the Sadrists, the followers of Muqtada Sadr, what they call it, Mahdi Army. They formed Mahdi Army hastily, and they started killing Americans hastily because they found it easy to do it. The ground for it, for the, the, the title occupation gave them the ground for it, and they found it easy to do it, and it will produce results because they were watching the Saudis and the Qataris doing it, and it's bringing results. What were, what, the, what were the results that they wanted to get the Americans out? What, what was the goal? Leverage. Leverage to post people, their people, and leverage to have a say in the, the Iraqi decision-making, leverage in getting their people in higher positions, even with the U.S. supervision. So let me get this straight. We're inviting the Iranians... That's the country that's vilified us as the great Satan for 40 years into Iraq, where they've been killing our soldiers and diplomats. And we're handing over an investigation of American citizens to these same people. Why? I asked our criminal defense expert, Joseph Lowe, whether we were all off our rockers with this conspiracy theory. What he had to say after spending a decade in the military and the next two decades defending his former comrades in court was eye-opening, to say the least. The government will use its criminal court to achieve its agenda politically, and there's plenty of examples of that through history in the United States. You don't even need my help with that, but I can point to you one just when the U.S. government was supporting the rebel movement in the Philippines back in the 80s, and in order to help the Philippines out because the Philippines were going to renew our base contract that we had there, the naval base, the big one, they had, the U.S. government had to help the incoming horizontal Aquino government with removing the Marcos family, Ferdinand and Imelda. And so in New York, they decided to prosecute Imelda Marcos for crimes against her people involving financial crimes. And what the hell would we have anything to do with that kind of situation in, in, in a federal court using a U.S. attorney in New York? And uh, my mentor tried that case representing Imelda Marcos and won it because he was able to prove Exactly what I'm saying, which is the federal government will use its criminal courts to achieve its political agenda when it needs to do so. And apparently, um, history is repeating itself again. You've heard all this before. So my point is, is that governments don't care about casualties. That's why there's war. As soon as they change the label from an innocent person in prison to a casualty of war, that's the price of doing business. These guys are, are, are political prisoners, really. Absolutely. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Against Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum edited this episode, and he also serves as our associate producer, along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. 
Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedom so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 23. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project.